Welcome to Simply Faithful, your place for Christian conversations without the hype. My name is Eric Tunches. I'm the pastor of Grace Central Church in Omaha, Nebraska. My name is Gray Ewing. I am the pastor of Ascension Church in Phoenix, Arizona. And here on Simply Faithful, we like to have conversations about life and faith and following Jesus that you can continue in your lives. Yeah, thanks for joining us. We love having new listeners as well as our old faithful as well. This week, the spiritual realm, or some of that weird stuff in the Bible. Great. So as I was thinking about what I wanted to talk with you about, here's the deal. We as pastors, at least I assume you have been, first of all, get asked about kind of some of the weird stuff in the Bible in terms of spiritual stuff, angels and demons and spiritual powers and spiritual warfare. And I I want to have a discussion with you about that, but I want to have a specific kind of discussion. We, uh, like a year ago, had an episode talking specifically about angels and demons and what they are, but this continues to be a topic that I have thought a lot about in the last few years because it's an area that I think I've too easily just sort of skipped past. I remember reading a book. It's one of the ones I'm going to mention at the end if people want some resources to explore uh, like a year ago, that was about some of these topics. And he, near the beginning, is just like, here's the thing. A lot of evangelicals dismiss a lot of these discussions about like the divine court and the spiritual conflict that lies behind the world as just weird, which is what I intentionally called it here in the intro, right? They're like, oh, these, there's just these weird passages and they just kind of skip them. And he lists them and there's like 60 of them <laughs> that he ends up listing. And he's just like, this isn't some obscure thing from, you know, one verse somewhere in the Old Testament. This is a set of themes and questions and issues that kind of weave through the Bible story. There's a proper sort of caution we need to have when we talk about them, but we probably need to pay more attention to them than we do. And so, yeah, I just want to talk about some of that stuff, that stuff about the spiritual conflicts and powers and principalities that we find cropping up kind of over and over in scripture, even though we don't get as detailed of an explanation as other things. And with that said, I guess the question I want to ask you to start is just, how do you feel about diving into that? Because man, that can be some treacherous ground. It can be, but I'm agreeing with you today that it's not as treacherous maybe as we have always assumed. So I I think there's a baseline where people are like, I don't think people think it's weird to say spiritual attack in the church. That's a phrase that gets used a lot. Like, spiritual attack. I think I'm under spiritual attack, that there's kind of these forces at work in the world is kind of a generally acceptable idea. But the moment you start mentioning any specifics from the Bible, there can be a real, and you know, I think it's interesting, like where does that cringe really come from? And why do we have it? Is is it kind of a modern thing? Is it because we've been influenced so much by scientific reason or something like that? I think we're both speaking from a context where there would be a a leeriness about these things while recognizing that there are plenty of places in Christendom where this is talked about like nonstop and and definitely everything is viewed through this lens. And so that's kind of the lay of the land from my perspective. That's right. So people have probably heard C.S. Lewis very famously, you know, talks about how the thing about the devil is that there's two mistakes you can make, which is being unhealthily obsessed by him and by ignoring him and pretending like he doesn't exist and that both of those lead to errors. And I think that needs to be said up front. On the one hand, the Bible says a lot more about spiritual stuff, spiritual struggles, powers and principalities, all of that, than most modern people are maybe comfortable thinking about. It, it's really a thing that crops up regularly in the Bible. But on the other hand, it's not in our circles, but there is an industry of spiritual warfare books 
and seminars and pastors that go like way beyond the Bible. And I mean, frankly, like I've read a couple of them over the years because people give them to me. It's, it's paganism. Um, it's not at all the way that scripture would view this with all these like spirits of air and water and, you know, casting out the demon of alcohol addiction from alcoholics, you know, it's, yes. So, so there's a lot of that stuff that we don't want to buy into, but I do think it's important for us to just kind of talk through the fact that like, no, but there, are, there's a real set of themes there. Before we dive into that area, I do want to just talk for a second about what you just said, though, because I have a real question about that. What is the nature of the kind of industry of talking about the spiritual realm? I'm a lot softer on it than I than I used to be, because when I think about it, you just quoted C.S. Lewis, uh, who wrote a book on demon discussion called The Screwtape Letters that has become a famous uh, work of literature. In that, he goes beyond the Bible, right? So you just mentioned one of the criticisms of it is that he just goes way beyond what the scriptures say. And so it is a work of speculative fiction. What it really is, is a work of moral analysis of, of the of scriptural themes, right? But it goes in terms of the way the demons act and what they discuss and stuff like that, it goes beyond it. I think back to Dante, you know, Dante's Inferno and these kinds of speculations are not new. I do have a question about that. Like is what C.S. Lewis and what Dante did something of a different kind than than what maybe a Frank Peretti or a Left Behind series or something like that, you know, that deals with these themes? Is it of a different kind or is it of just a different quality? Because, of course, I would agree that there's a quality difference between C.S. Lewis and, uh, you know, Jerry B. Jenkins, uh, who's writing, you know, the 14th Left Behind book, you know, on a six-month publishing deadline that he needed to get out to feed the frenzy back 20 years ago, whatever it was, you know, there's a difference in quality for sure. But having a uh, demon of alcoholism in a story, how is that different than what, you know, C.S. Lewis did? Sure. Let me answer that on two different levels. So first of all, we should note things like Dante and Lewis are works of fiction that understand that they're fiction and that really are kind of using the spiritual world as an analogy for just broader observations about human psychology, spiritual struggle, and wisdom in a way that includes the spiritual, but that also recognizes that um, that that it's all entangled together, which we're going to, in some ways, acknowledge later on. Well, many of yeah, Screwtape's instructions to Wormwood are really just observations about the Christian life, right? Distract this person with trivialities so that they don't focus on Jesus or something like that. The books that I have in mind are not really even things like those Frank Peretti, This Present Darkness books, although I'd have some pretty major critiques for parts of how he portrays the spiritual realm, because those are at least fictional. But there is a whole book section that if you don't kind of move in those circles, you know, you might not have even been exposed to that are, that are frankly books about demonology in a nonfiction sense. And they're drawing a lot from Kabbalah and a lot from Enoch and other apocryphal books and a lot from, from other religious traditions that aren't Christianity in order to try to give like hierarchies of demons and the names of demons and different types of spirits that afflict you. And so if you have lethargy, there's this kind of spirit and you need to pray this sort of prayer, you know, to gain victory over them. And, you know, you need to erect certain hedges of protection or against certain demons around your home, things like that. And that's what I had, especially in mind when I said that it's effectively paganism in my mind, mm -hmm. because it doesn't at all rest on biblical principles, but is instead trying to go not beyond scripture in the sense of like, I'm writing a work of fiction and have to imagine some things, but going beyond scripture in the sense of trying to give established facts for your life about a world that we can't actually speak to. Yeah, that's a good distinction. 
I'm largely unfamiliar with that world, but I'm sure I, I don't disbelieve that it exists. I've had one or two books come across my desk, but that said, great. Instead of critiquing that, let's talk about the story of the Bible in terms of our world. I'd say the arc of it is we're going to say that in scripture, we see that we live in a spiritually charged world that is in spiritual conflict. But do you want to jump in and maybe start and we can take turns sharing some of the themes of that? Yeah, the idea that uh, is really behind all of Paul's writing is that we are in a cosmic battle. And so that has been the inspiration for a lot of that kind of speculative fiction. It's truly happening. So he says in Ephesians chapter 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so absolutely scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, recognize that there is a realm of the seen and the realm of the unseen, and that there is there are things that happen on each one that affect the other, that there is not a complete overlap of them. So they, they are different realms, but they are also so uh, touching each other. To add to that then, especially in the Old Testament, we see this theme that kind of weaves in the background of a number of Old Testament stories about what theologians call the heavenly court, which is basically the idea that so God on earth has these representatives in humanity that are his agents that he puts on earth to rule over the earth. And that it seems that God in heaven also has beings that are at least initially meant to be his representatives, although then there's some sort of rebellion or tension that exists with those beings that, that are pictured as sort of a heavenly courtroom. So you have places like Psalm 82, where God is pictured as taking his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods or the sons of God. You have that kind of language regularly used for these kind of supernatural divine almost beings that are not God and are created, but that are real things. You have cropping up throughout the scriptures. For example, in Deuteronomy 32, it talks about him fixing the borders of mankind according to the number of the sons of God, which is a term for angels in the Old Testament, usually. Daniel 10 and other places, you see these sort of angels like of Persia and Greece there kind of cropping up. And we get these sort of images, even though people debate what to do with them, like in the first two chapters of Job and in chapter three of Zechariah, where God's actually sort of in his heavenly council with the angels and others. And in the, both of those cases, Satan appears in the heavenly court um, as an accuser of God's people. And so, yeah, you have this image of like, there are supernatural beings in a sort of court almost, or in a royal setting, given authority, given agency in the world, and that God rules ultimately over them, but that they're a real thing that exists. Lest people think only of the pantheon and Zeus amongst, uh, you know, the, the other gods or something like that. Largely, when scripture is talking about this, is the spiritual beings that you're talking about are his messengers, uh, his angels, and whatever that rank and category is, we don't fully understand. You know, one way to kind of visually do this is sometimes in those passages, it's not always clear whether it's talking about the angels or the stars in heaven. So, in, at the very least, we could say, uh, the angels surround God kind of like, you know, from a phenomenological sense, the stars surround the sun, right? Even though, you know, they're at different distances and that kind of thing. But from a phenomenological, what I mean by that is just observing the sky as the ancient writers would write about these things. It's like God is surrounded by his lights, by his uh, by his rulers. So it's not in a sense that there are competing gods and that there's one who just happens to be stronger than the other. But more of that, the spiritual realm contains beings that are godlike in a sense, and they have power, uh, but God is the ruler of them all and created them. Yeah, God himself is of a different order of magnitude than the divine court, to be clear. Yeah, he's just not one among a number of equal gods. 
In fact, I mean, there's places in scripture, including in Paul's writings, the idea seems to be that some of the gods that the nations worship are spiritual, real spiritual beings. He, he talks about them, you know, making sacrifices to idols, that they're actually making sacrifices to demons, for example. And it does seem that some of those beings are also in rebellion against God. Like the whole question of demons is really complicated. We might touch on that in a little bit. And there's debate about what they even are and how to think about them biblically. But it's yeah. pretty clear that some of these sons of God, some of these divine beings are in rebellion against God. And that many of them have sort of dominion over nations that are opposed to God, which is then the powers and principalities that Paul seems to be thinking about. Rebellion against is different than equal and opposite, right? So I just want to put that in people's minds. Like, absolutely, there there are uh, those who are in rebellion against, and there are real beings that people worship that are not God. But it's not as though the the world is divided into these forces that then battle against each other that are equal and opposite. Well, that's right. They're in some sense sort of analogous to human beings. It seems like we don't not in every way, but they're created beings by God. But they have a sort of authority that's originally from God, but that they still exercise. Just like we're created in God's image, we still have a real divine power and authority, but we use it oftentimes for evil now in the world. But but Scripture is willing to use the language of gods to describe them at times or other divine sounding language. Not because they're equal with the Lord, but because when we look at them, we would re- we would see them as sort of like powerful supernatural forces and beings. That's right. It's, there's also something going on with the language there, which is the word for God is Elohim. There is a plural form of Elohim, gods, not meaning that there is more God than one. There is more than one being that is an Elo. There is no singular for it, but an Elohim amongst the other Elohim. We have that in the background, that thing. And there are times that it kind of pops up in the Bible. And there's even sort of these weird themes that weave through the Bible that touch on that. So like you have this series of weird texts that starts with Genesis 6, where it talks about the sons of God coming down and intermarrying with the daughters of men and having offspring that seem to be sort of great warriors of old or giants. And then there's a bunch of places throughout the Old Testament that those people or descendants of those people pop up. And in the New Testament, both Second Peter 2 and Jude seem to talk about sort of that event as being where what we would think of as demons come from, that the sons of God are cast down from heaven and judged because of because they do not know their place and because of their sexual immorality. And again, that's weird. We're not going to probe into all of the details of that this morning. And it's never explored in depth. That's part of what makes it so interesting in the Bible. But there are several themes like that that do seem to reflect that fact that there is this sort of tension and conflict that exists in the spiritual realm right now, and that it sort of intrudes into our world in different ways, and it intrudes into the biblical story in different ways. That's right. So while it's there... I would say that we're never given a textbook on how to understand all the different levels of these things or anything like that. Uh, the writers of scripture seem to be aware of the spiritual realm, but they seem to have very little interest in explicating it in any kind of detailed way. Which is why hierarchies and names of angels and types of spirits and, ana- you know, anatomies of spiritual warfare, like I mentioned earlier, are problematic because they assume that the Bible doesn't give us everything that's necessary for life and godliness. So we don't need to know all of those details. A lot of them are mysterious, but we are supposed to understand that it's a thing that's happening. And I'd also just mention, recognizing all of that makes a lot more sense of the ministry of Jesus, too. Jesus goes around casting out demons and fighting demons in a way that's completely unique in the Bible story. There's a few stories of kind of demonic encounters by the apostles in the book of Acts, especially early in Acts. But beyond that, it's just not a thing that you find happen a lot in the story of Scripture. And that seems to highlight the sort of central, pivotal impact and spiritual conflict that's a part of Jesus's ministry. That, that he's really at the center of this kind of spiritual battle that's happening. 
Yeah, and and not just something that he does. He alone can cast out the demon. His power alone can cast out the demons, I should say, because he does give that authority to the the apostles. But um, also for our own spiritual life, like think of the Lord's Prayer, where he tells us that we should pray that we would be delivered from evil, so that there's a sense in which he recognizes that the the battle... Well, or the evil one is probably a very valid translation of that. Correct. So... Uh, it's it's unclear in the Lord's Prayer if, if that's like a, a noun form, like a the evil one, or if it's just evil in general. In some sense, it doesn't matter what we're talking for for this discussion because what we're saying is that he recognizes the spiritual realm and that there are enemies, right? And therefore, it's going to be an ongoing part of the spiritual life to recognize those enemies. And the New Testament views the ministry of Jesus and ultimately his death and resurrection as being in part about that spiritual conflict. So, like in Colossians two. Paul says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities, which is, again, language for kind of spiritual powers, not just earthly rulers. But God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus and especially in his cross there in Colossians 2. So Jesus, part of his work, as well as his work for us, has to do with the sort of spiritual conflict that exists in the universe and sort of winning the decisive victory in that spiritual conflict. So, okay, let me just try to give a summary of the story as I think I understand it in scripture. And you can critique this then if you want. But I would say God is the creator and Lord of heaven and earth, like we said. It's not that there's other gods that are equal to him. But in both heaven and earth, he makes agents, beings, to carry out his will. And on earth, that's humanity. And in heaven, that is heavenly beings, like angels. And some of them seem to rebel and become demons. And those realms are distinct, but they're connected And heavenly beings have real influence and authority in certain spheres of earthly life. And the conflict that they're in has real implications for us. And because of our rebellion and some of their rebellion and the conflict that exists in the universe, then we experience that and the impacts of that in our hearts and human societies. And then Jesus ultimately comes to win the victory and restore God's good reign. And then we didn't get to this, but at the end of the story, God will finally bring judgment and restoration. One of the interesting things in Revelation is that when God makes hell, right, the the fiery pit, like it's first for Satan and his angels. And in as much as humans are then, you know, judged and sent there, it's sort of as an almost as an afterthought in the story because they followed and joined with Satan and his angels in rebellion. What do you think we can know, Eric, about how how parallel our sin and the angels' rebellion is you know so in other words there's some scriptural passages that people tie to the falling of satan that are speculative at best about about that event and yet we know that we are responsible for our own story so our our sinful natures come from adam's sin that is imputed to us you know uh it is it is a human sin uh but we also know that there was an agent in the garden <laughs> that was you know that was tempting Adam away from his calling, that serpent of old, as the scripture says, um, Satan himself, I believe, even though there's some debate about that topic. Where, where do you see the parallels between the falling of the spiritual realm and the falling of humanity? So there's two things that I need to say. The first is that I think in general, we need to be cautious about making too many parallels, uh, both because like you said, I think people tend to focus on Satan and the fall of Satan. The texts that people cite is about that. It's very unclear what's going on in those texts and whether they're actually about the fall of Satan and the rebellion of Satan himself and even like his identity and how we think of him. Most of that actually comes from mysticism and medieval traditions and then Milton's Paradise Lost, which is it's like the screw tape letters. You know, I mean, 
Milton's exploring questions of human freedom and pride and kind of using Satan as an image of that. It's not, it's not reflecting everything we could say theologically. So in that sense, I'd be careful. The only reason I'm not just like, eh, you shouldn't go there is interestingly, so I mentioned both Jude, especially verse six and second Peter, uh, the, the first 10 verses do actually in discussing false teachers and warning against sin, use the sin of angels as one of the like, you know, like analogies to, to human sin. It seems to focus in terms of abandoning their proper place that God has given them and sexual immorality. Like both of those things are cited as sort of like sins of angels that are connected and reflected in certain human sins. So I guess in that extent, I don't know that we can fully divorce it. That's that's the most that we can say about what was happening. And that ties back to Genesis 6. And there, again, there's lots of questions about what that is and what's happening. So yeah. it's not clear that in detail we can say it. But I do think there's a sense in which we can recognize that like there seems to be a sort of similarness between divine beings and humans in their rebellion, even though we can't work out the details. And we have to say, even though we don't know the details, and I agree, those texts that are used to talk about the fall of Beelzebub or the the falling star, uh, which is Lucifer. Anyway, those passages are very hard to understand. I think we can say that the spiritual rebellion preceded the... I don't know if you can say that, but that is a position. Here's what I mean. So certainly not the sons of God coming down to the daughters of men in Genesis 6. That didn't precede Adam, right? That came after Adam. But I mean, obviously, if the tempter in the garden was suggesting that, you know, a a different way from God, that is a form of rebellion that had to exist before Adam and Eve's fall. I think probably. I actually am more agnostic about some of these details than I think you are. But I think part of what's hard here is that when you kind of it's a long, complicated discussion about possibilities and ways of interpreting those texts, that is not that I think that's wrong. It's just that the more I kind of study this from some sources that are trying to dig into the biblical stuff and spend some time thinking about the biblical stuff, the less firm I am on a lot of details beyond just some big picture, like there's spiritual forces, some of them are in rebellion, yeah, <laughs> things like that. And so, yeah, I'm probably being frustrating the noncommittal. There's no timeline in my mind. Like, th- so those beings are not eternal, right? God alone is eternal. They were created at some point. Probably some of them rebelled at some point and some of them rebelled at different points later in the story. You know, in other words, what I'm trying to get at is not so much a timeline for the spiritual realm, but what I'm trying to get at is we don't need to tie the rebellion of Satan to our rebellion somehow being at the exact same time. Yes, that's right. Okay, that's all weird stuff, (laughs) right? And I suspect some of our listeners feel more confused now than they did at the beginning. But let me first just name why I think this is an important topic in terms of how we think about the world. And then I want us to talk about a few practical things. The reason I think this is so important for us to talk about is because we live in a world where everything is spiritually charged, if if this is true. And it is easy for us not to appreciate that fact. Because of modernity, we have this tendency to view most of life, I think, as sort of disconnected from our spiritual lives, disconnected from the spiritual realities of the world behind it. And because of that, We take a lot of things for granted, ignore a lot of dangers, just act in ways that don't fit with that reality. And so I would just say, like, we live in a world where, like, the physical and spiritual, where the life as we experience it and the spiritual conflicts and powers and principalities are real and intertwined. And so we need to look at our struggles with sin. We need to look at our own hearts and the struggles that we have internally. We need to look at the way we engage with people, all of that in a way that recognizes those spiritual conflicts and realities that are really in play. I would even go further and say 
some of the details of our lives that are hard or that are recurrent can be ways that we understand them those spiritually as well. Let me give you an example that is somewhat treacherous, but like I think in my mind is certainly spiritual attack. So there was a, a season early in my ministry where I woke up at the exact same minute for three weeks in a row. I have it written down. It was in a sermon one time, but I don't remember right now. Off. It was like 2.01 a.m. And it w- I wouldn't just wake up. I would wake up with feelings of pressure, shame, you know, like all kinds of just dark things in my heart that that felt like they were coming from the outside. It wasn't as though I was walking in open rebellion to God. It wasn't as though, you know, uh, I was living in sin that was recurrent and all these things. Like, I just felt this oppression and it always happened at the exact same time every single night for weeks. Now, what you do with that information kind of reveals where you what you view about the world, right? So in other words, of course, and it, it's not as though this can't be true, but your body can get accustomed to waking up at the same time. You know, there, there are people that that wake up at 5.30 a.m. without an alarm clock every day uh, because that's what they've accustomed their body to do. Those things happen. But I knew that I needed to interpret that spiritually, right? In some sense, especially because it was attached to all this pressure and this spiritual pain. Even even the the everyday things that, you know, avoiding C.S. Lewis's like find a demon under every rock kind of thing. But recognizing that there can be moments in our lives where we say this has to be some kind of interaction with the world that is unseen. No, I agree. But I want to press further than that because I, I mean, I absolutely think those sorts of things can be interactions with the unseen world. But I think a lot of things that don't feel like they are are as well. And that's a lot of my concern. In this. So, for example, it is very easy for me and for, I think, every Christian to entertain certain temptations with the assumption that it's it's sort of nothing. It's just like a bad habit that wants to reassert itself or it doesn't have any meaning beyond some specific discrete choice that nobody knows about something like that. But given the way the scripture views the world as spiritually charged and our struggles with sin is spiritually charged, it would say, no, there's actually an intelligent, malevolent force in the universe that is seeking to find footholds and slowly degrade and attack your soul. And that when you make those choices, you're actually opening yourself up to those attacks, right? You know, opening the door to the enemy, giving him a foothold in your life. And that that sort of charges, even those sort of everyday struggles, with sin, with real spiritual significance. That's right. One of the one of the ways that you can catch that too is thinking about the lies that you believe and are you know will fall into. Because one thing we also know about the enemy is that he's the father of lies, and that he often uses deception, uh, whether it's a self deception or a deception from others, to bring some some powerful experience into your life. And so when you have those moments of believing things that you know aren't true, whether it's about God or if it's about other people and what they, you know, like that that person hates me. They, you know, God could never love me after this. Those types of things are one of the ways that he engages us. That's right. Recognizing Satan's the accuser. You know, when scripture talks about the world, the flesh and the devil, these sort of forces that, you know, that can attack us, like the devil is one of those forces. And that doesn't mean literally that like Lucifer is sitting on the end of your, you know, there's a story about Martin Luther throwing a candlestick at the wall because he thought that Lucifer was there. And I'm like, I don't know that that's literally true. 
But the underlying, like, bigger picture idea, which is that there's spiritual forces that are kind of, like, trying to tell us lies about ourselves, accusing us, tearing us down, you know, and that we're called to, like, recognize that the, that voice in your head can have that spiritually charged kind of thing. And that it's not you, importantly, in that, right? That it's something outside of you trying to destroy you, and so you need to speak truth back to it and cling to Jesus in the face of it. I think about the world that way, and I've found a lot of help, actually, in some of those ways of self-condemnation. In some ways, it's like you have to grow into that, right? You have to like grow into that awareness. I think you can you can have an unhealthy obsession with it earlier in life, but then the denial of it is something that I think a lot of people go through. And then to return to it as something as real is is almost like a spiritual awakening process. Right. And all of these things can go wrong in so many ways. And obviously, there are all sorts of people that want to treat things as simplistically demonic when it's a lot more complicated than that, right? So like one of the just disclaimers that needs to be made and what we just said is that obviously like people have real struggles with mental health as well and, you know, they, they need help. But in both directions, I think the way that conversation goes wrong, like can a struggle with crippling anxiety and depression be both biological and something that you need to talk therapy or maybe meds or, you know, or whatever to work through and something where, you know, there's spiritual forces at the in the world that are trying to tear you down. Like, I think it can be both of those things at the same time. You just need to not buy the either or in either direction. And so it's destructive for people to buy the either or that says like, oh, well, you just need, you know, to pray the sadness away rather than going and seeing a counselor. Like, that's really unhealthy. But so is the idea like, oh, you just need to, you know, take some SSRIs and <laughs> not engage with the kind of spiritual realities of life. Hopefully you have a spiritual counselor that will tell you that you're in the middle of, of spiritual warfare. Yeah. And so in all of that, that's all kind of trying to summarize that reality. We're in a spiritually charged world. We should talk about you use that term spiritual warfare, right? Again, in Ephesians 6, Paul talks about how we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness. So if that's true, I think some people have been exposed to ideas of spiritual warfare and others don't. What does that mean? And how do we kind of fight that kind of warfare? In Paul's writing, the way that we do that is through the armor of God. It can be an overused trope in uh, spiritual books and you know children's literature and everything. But let's not let that throw out what Paul actually does, which is to say the enemy has fiery darts, right? He has attack. And so what we do is we put on the breastplate of righteousness. So we take up the shield of faith. We attack with the sword of the spirit. We have these spiritual tools that are given to us that are uh, God's gifts, faith, the spirit of God, living, keeping in step with the spirit, prayer as a warfare tool. And so we need to not to go into that passage and study every aspect of it. The overall point is that we are given, you know, ways by God himself to fight the enemy and that we're supposed to take that up and not just be on the defensive, but on, be on the offensive. I think there's something that is really important that's easy to miss, which is that the way I've put it before to people is that spiritual warfare in scripture is spiritually minded, ordinary faithfulness, spiritually minded, ordinary faithfulness, which is on the one hand, it's to say, it doesn't consist of extra stuff. It's not like incense and Latin incantations or mm -hmm. weird charts of different names of demons that you need to name and cast out, things like that, right? It's, it's prayer, it's scripture, it's seeking to follow in righteousness, it's clinging to the gospel and staying close to the Holy Spirit, right? Those are the things that Paul says are the ways that we wage war. But it's that ordinary faithfulness in a way that's spiritually minded. And again, that understands and moves through the world using those things in a way that's mindful of the fact that there's a spiritual world as well as a physical world all around us. That's right. The shield of faith is not some kind of like shield that we then like pray over like a thousand 
thousand times so that it's, you know, stronger. You know, it's just, it's faith. It's having faith is what he means. It's an image, but it means that faith is on you, right? And that's not the only time in scripture that faith is talked about, right? It's a thing (laughs) that God gives us. Yes. And so if anything, I think it speaks to us even more so of the importance of those sorts of ordinary practices of faithfulness and spirituality. That prayer isn't just a chance for you to have some time with God or to, just to share some needs that you have physically, but it's actually a part of that spiritual conflict and you're joining with it. And the same for those other parts of the Christian life. With that said, Gray, I think we're going to leave the discussion there. I feel like it would have been easy to go way down some of those rabbit trails further, but I hope that that's at least helpful to our listeners and maybe a little bit of a worldview shift or challenge for some of you. I think over the last decade, I found kind of my worldview increasingly open to some of these things while also being suspicious of some others. <laughs> but with that said, we're going to shift gears now and end our discussion the way that we always like to end it, which is that there are things in this world that are just good, <laughs> despite the spiritual conflict that lies behind it. There are just yeah ordinary things that are blessings of God that we get to enjoy, whether that's stuff in creation, whether that's stuff with people, uh, whether that's creative arts and things. So, Gray, I'm going to ask you what we ask every time, which is what's been good for you lately? So today, Eric, I'm breaking the mold. I feel like there's a drama that we go through here on the show where we all have parts to play. And uh, you often play the part of the geek on the show. And I'm the cool kid that everybody wants to be like. Um, and <laughs> well, my part is not is not false, at least. <laughs> Although yours is maybe a little bit put on. Uh, that's funny. So uh, I'm going to share some some geekery today. I'm not above it, even though I have never played a role playing game before in my life. And I do not own uh, a single board game that you can't also buy at, at Walmart. And I can't imagine spending any amount of time painting a, a mini figurine or anything like that. Despite all that, I uh, am not above some geekery sometime. And I want to recommend a website that is uh, amazing. It is called aku.blog. And that is like as in a political revolt, coup, C-O-U-P, aku.blog. This is a, um, by its own description, a collection of unmitigated pedantry. And you have this guy who is a professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. His name is Dr. Brett C. Devereaux. And on this website, you will find all kinds of amazing perspectives on both historical and and also imagined battles. So you'll find things like a, an analysis of the Battle of Helm's Deep in The Lord of the Rings, but done so from the perspective of like how all the forces would have been arrayed, where they came from, how they would have to have foraged for food uh, on their way to the Battle of Helm's Deep, and, and also just the logistics of the battle itself. So he is a history professor and has studied um, you know things like historical battles. And I think he's a European history uh, professor about like Sparta and Greece and, and ancient stuff as well as modern. European history. But anyway, you will find amazing articles about things like foraging, like how armies move from place to place. And he kind of does this thing where he he looks at both historical uh, things and analyzes them, but also he looks at the world building of Tolkien and other modern day uh, fantasy writers and sees how realistic their European battle style tactics really are. So he's a huge fan of Tolkien. And actually Tolkien, according to him, has one of the best senses of like how long it takes for an army to move and like what resources 
resources they would need. Uh, whereas he just totally trashes modern day writers like uh, who, who wrote Game of Thrones. I don't I don't even know. George R.R. R. Martin. Yeah. He trashes Martin all the time. Well, he wrote a song of ice and fire. Sorry, my nerd friends. Go ahead, Gray. <laughs> Yeah, he's like this guy. Yeah. I mean, and just in terms of like how long it would take for different groups to move across maps and that kind of stuff. So if you want to spend a day just going down unmitigated pedantry, a look at history and popular culture, I would recommend Brett Devereaux's thoughts on a coup, A-C-O-U-P dot blog. I would give you some grief. I've actually read some of Brett Devereaux's things for several years now, so I can't really give you too much of a hard time. Some of his earlier stuff on like the logistics of the Lord of the Rings and stuff. I remember being sent and enjoying. And so, yeah, I will readily support the geekery in any form that it takes. (laughs) All right, friends. With that said, thanks so much for joining us. This has been Simply Faithful. We would appreciate it if you would share this episode with a friend, if you would think it would be helpful to them, if you would continue to talk to them, and feel free to check us out online at the normal places. Yeah, a review uh, or talking about it with other people would really help us as well. If you want to give us five stars in your your app of choice, if you're listening to this on a podcasting app, that would help us uh, promote the show as well. And if you want to give us one star, just like go on Facebook and type one star into the comment thread, because that definitely does the same thing. <laughs> now, you can, you can leave your negative reviews too. But with that said, friends, thanks so much for joining us. My name is Eric. And I'm Gray. And this has been Simply Faithful.